You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Everything needs to be corroborated. Anything that you rely on has to be corroborated by some other source. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, I know what you're asking. You're asking, what is this show? Well, let me tell you what this show is. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams. What else? Well, I didn't know you were going to throw it to me, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) The phishing schemes. Criminal exploits. Criminal exploits. That are making the headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. That's right. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. And who the heck are you? I'm Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University (laughs) Information Security Institute. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way, we've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, Carol Terrio speaks with Lisa Forte. She's from Red Goat Cyber, and she's going to be talking about how her experiences as a police officer inform her perspective on the human factors of cybersecurity. And we are back. Joe, before we get to our stories, we got a kind letter from a listener. And this is actually a letter. Someone wrote out a letter. It's handwritten, very nicely done, sent all the way from Germany. Who does this anymore? Well, a true gentleman does this, Joe. Yes, that's correct. (laughs) Who does this? (laughs) Forgive me to the uh, author of this letter if I get your name wrong, but I believe it's Majit is a way to pronounce it. Again, apologies in, in advance. But he says, greetings from Germany. I'm an Egyptian computer science master's student at the University of Constance, Germany. I'm an avid listener of your outstanding podcast, Hacking Humans, and I practically told everyone I study and work with about it. Love the show. Well, we love you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank, you very, thank you very much for the kind <laughs> yes, words. Yes. Uh, he says, I have a curious question, if I may. You gentlemen mentioned quite a few stories about email hijacking, and the aftermath is oftentimes financially disastrous. It often is, yes. I understand that two-factor authentication is effective, of course, but are solutions like digital signatures considered in the corporate world? If I'm the only person who owns a private key that I sign my emails with, then it's computationally infeasible for anyone to masquerade as me, right? Thanks a bunch and keep up the good work. P.S. Love the accents. <laughs> what do you think, Joe? Yes, that's true. When you sign an email with your private key and you put a digital signature on it, there's no way for someone to forge that. However, my concern is that the interface is a just a little icon next to the email that says it's been signed. Now, I can click on that, look at the digital signature and everything, but if somebody else signs it with another valid certificate and is impersonating you, it might still appear to be signed. Oh, I see. It's definitely a good measure that should be enacted. I use it on my email at JHU. Oh, really? Yep, I do. Chris Venghaus, who's my uh, one of my coworkers, he uses it as well. And I know that there are places where if the culture of the, the organization is such that you don't sign an email, people will ignore it. But that's really the point, is that you really have to have a culture like that. And that's kind of difficult to implement, whereas two-factor authentication is something you can implement more easily. My suggestion is do both, uh-huh. you know, because once you implement the certificate, it's transparent to the user. Right. And I guess with two-factor, it's all on you. But right. with uh, these digital signatures, everybody's got to be in on the game. Yes. You need buy-in. And that's hard to get with something as open as email. I was talking with somebody the other day, and they said they don't even like using email. And my comment to them was, yeah, email's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's a decades-old system. that Security was never considered in the development of this protocol. Yeah. You're just stuck with that legacy. Yeah. All right. Well, again, uh, thank you for sending in your kind letter. We do appreciate it. And uh, we always love hearing from uh, our listeners. So please don't hesitate to reach out if you have a question for us. Joe, let's get to our stories this week. What do you have for us? Well, Dave, you know what tomorrow is, right? 
go on. It's Valentine's Day. Uh-oh. So that means romance scams. <laughs> it means I try to avoid my wife for an entire day. <laughs> what did you get me? Uh, I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> my article comes from the BBB, the Better Business Bureau, and specifically from the BBB of Nebraska, South Dakota, Kansas, Plains, and Southwest Iowa. So it's kind of mm. a Midwest focused region of the Better Business Bureau. And okay. a man named Jim Hegarty is the CEO of this organization. They're talking about romance scams and the, the BBB has a scam tracker that reports on scams in the service area of this region of the BBB. Hmm. And they are telling some stories in this article. One woman from Papillon, Nebraska was scammed out of four grand, mm. $4,000. There was another woman from Omaha who was taken for $25,000. Mm. And they have a third victim in here from Wichita, Kansas, $14,000. But the big story in here takes the cake. There is one woman from Nebraska, and they don't name her in this thing, which is probably good. But she worked with the Better Business Bureau on an investigation for her scam because she fell in love with a guy she met on Match.com. All right. And it was a typical romance scam. They talked on the phone every day over the course of five months. And she video chatted with him on FaceTime. Huh. Right. So she had seen this guy. Right. And everything about him seemed real and sincere. And over time, guess what happened? She came to trust him. And Haggerty says that this is very common among the victims. There is often a very long grooming period before these guys ask for money. It's sad to tell this story, but the woman sent the scammer money for several plane tickets for him to come visit in Nebraska. And something always would come up and he wouldn't be able to do it. Mm. Now, I know what we're thinking, right? I send you money for a plane ticket so you can come see me. And then you say, oh, something came up. I can't come. And then I say, you coming out to see me? You go, yeah, send me money for a plane ticket. And I say, use the money I sent you last time. Right. <laughs> that's what I would say. Yeah. Or that's what I think I would say. Right. But this woman did not say that. She continually sent him money. Uh, he claimed his paychecks were being held up because of taxes. Okay. And that he'd pay her back after everything was cleared up, right? Right. So this is just another thing that is a great example of how they can provide a plausible problem that can be a long time horizon problem. Yeah. uh, Tax problems can last for years. Sure. When she finally had had enough, she sent him money for a plane ticket to come to Nebraska for Christmas, and she waited at the airport for hours and he never showed up. Mm. In all, this woman lost $400,000. Wow. It's a lot of money. She lost all of her liquid assets. She took out a mortgage against her home, which had already been paid off. Oh, no. Right? And she lost $170,000 out of her investment portfolio. And here's what really, I don't know if this angers me or if this sickens me. I I can't tell you. The woman is a widow. That's why they took advantage of her. It's just awful that this happened to this poor woman. Yeah. The article mentions that consumers can also report these kind of scams to the Federal Trade Commission. And they've noted that these scams are growing. In 2017, there were just under 17,000 reports. In 2018, there were over 22,000 reports. And last year, 2019, 38,000 reports, almost 39,000 reports. So, so over it's, two years, n- nearly doubled. It's nearly doubled over two years. Hmm. It's more than doubled. Now, I wonder how much of that is increased reporting because of awareness. I, that could be a factor. I, I wonder that, too. I tend to think it might actually be a combination of maybe increased in reporting, but also increased activity. Right. Because we also have seen many times in these stories that people who do get scammed are, are embarrassed to report it. Right. I think that this happened to this woman. I don't know the story, but here are some of the common themes that we've seen in these stories. One, this woman may have been isolated, 
right? Mm -hmm. Like she didn't have anybody she could talk to about this situation and she wasn't mentioning it to people. Nobody was asking her about this. Right. Nobody's saying, hey, mom, what's going on with your boyfriend? Have you met him in person yet? Well, I can imagine even a child might not even think to ask. Yeah, their parent, exactly. Their, no, their widowed parent if they're having any sort of romantic relationship at all. You're absolutely your right. It's a, it's a good question for children to ask their parents if their parents are widowed or single or for whatever reason. Yeah. You know, if they're in the just, dating game. Yeah, just are you lonely? Are you seeing anyone? You know, right. so that's something that simple could yeah, check on them. reveal that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Start asking the questions. Are you sending this guy money? Does he have a pile of excuses? Because when this woman eventually confronted her uh, scammer, he had another series of excuses lined up, mm -hmm. ready to go. Yeah. I'm surprised at the boldness of, of using, uh, you know, FaceTime to connect that way. We don't hear that very often. No, we don't. I hope she took screenshots. Yeah. So that they have a picture of the guy. Mm. I bet she didn't. Because why would you? If it's someone, if you trust someone and you, you know, I don't know. Although it's hard to say, you know, I could imagine if also if you're, if you're in love with someone, you'd might want to have a picture of them that you could look at, yeah. you know, all the time. You could, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, well, I wish her well. I hope they are able to get some of this back. I, unfortunately, I doubt they will, but it's a good lesson for all of us. And yeah. we, we've said it many times here to check in on your family and, and your friends, uh, particularly those folks who might not have a lot of people around them. And sometimes these questions are uncomfortable, but you got to ask them. You yep. just got to figure out a nice tactful way to, to breach those subjects. Or do what I do and just be blunt. <laughs> <laughs> a sad ending, but a uh, cautionary tale. Yep. My story this week actually comes from BuzzFeed News. The title of it is, These Fake Local News Sites Have Confused People for Years. We found out who created them. I realize there's not a bit of small irony that a story about fake news might be coming from BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed. <laughs> right. But uh, this this, but, is... uh, this does seem to check out. This caught my eye when I saw it come by actually on Twitter. A security researcher pointed this out. So a lot of us rely on Google alerts to yes. keep track of news items, things that we're interested in. Uh, Google has this service, Google Alerts, where you can put in topics that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. And when those things bubble up in the news... Google alerts you. Yep. And you can follow those stories. Well, for the past couple of years, there have been a bunch of stories that have been bubbling up on Google alerts that are from local online news publications that it turns out are not real. They are fake publications. Huh. The news they're publishing most of the time is plagiarized and old. Huh. So a story from a year ago will bubble up into Google Alerts as new and it coming from a seemingly legitimate online news source. In other words, if you went to this page... Right, it and, would look like a news source. Right, right. For example, you know, you and I, we live in Howard County is the Correct. county we live in in Maryland. So it would be, you know, the Howard County Journal or something right. like that. And at a first glance, it looks like a legit news service. There's well-written articles, but most of them are plagiarized. So some people noticed this and were trying to figure out why these old stories were coming up on their Google alerts and why Google wasn't catching them. Right. Why is Google not vetting their news sources for Google alerts? Correct. And uh, BuzzFeed followed up on this. And one of the things, of course, they explored was that we live in this time when there's this thing called fake news where people are trying to put out disinformation. Right. It's the old uh, Russian playbook of not necessarily changing your mind about something, but just making you feel uncertain about things. Right. And wondering what is the truth and getting that feeling of uncertainty and anxiety 
often that is the goal. Yep. So BuzzFeed uh, explored that, but they found out in the end, Joe, guess what this was all about? Uh, I'm going to take a wild guess here. This is about <laughs> ad revenue. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yes. In the end, it was about making money. Right. <laughs> so they actually traced it back to some folks who were proprietors of these sites. They were spinning up bunches of these sorts of sites and filling them with plagiarized material. Plagiarized material. And then selling ads on those sites when they hit the Google search engine. Exactly. And, or if there's a way you can query Google to find out what people are most interested in for the news alerts. I wonder if there's some angle of that. Hmm. Like if I look and I see that people are really interested in, say, Calvin Ball, right? Right. He's our, our county executive. Our county executive. Yep. And then if there's some way I could find that out, then I could start reposting old articles about Calvin Ball winning the election, which happened about a year ago, right? Yeah. So one of the questions BuzzFeed looked into is why were these getting past Google's filtering. Yes. Because Google, of course, it's a big part of their business is keeping this stuff out of there. Google doesn't want these things running because it makes people feel like they're less confident in Google. Yeah. So it seems as though these news sites looking so legitimate, not drawing attention to themselves, just looking and plus the fact that they're small town publications. Yeah, that's right. The effort that Google would have to go through here would be pretty big. Mm -hmm. If you consider all of these different small towns, they could probably have some kind of plagiarism system yeah. that you know says, here's a new article. Let's look at all the old articles and see if this is just a plagiarized article. Right. Every academic institution has that capability. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, evidently, Google has uh, terminated some of the AdSense advertising accounts that belong to the people who are Oh, really? Doing this sort of thing. Oh, yeah. that's, that's a significant step. And Google says they've tweaked some of their settings to try to, to do a better job with this. It's a tough thing to know how to advise people to protect themselves against this. This is someone taking advantage of the way that a fully automated system works. Right. To put information in front of people that is stale. Yeah. Out, out of date. And yet carrying this ad load, and that's how they make the money. Right. So I suppose, I mean, vigilance is... Yeah, vigilance. One thing that I have the habit of doing is any news story that's been shared. Right. Like I'm going through Twitter and someone says, check out this article. First thing I do is check the date on it. Right. The publication date yeah. to make sure that it's not a story from a year ago or even six months ago. Yep. So I think that's a good standard thing to do. And check the source to see if it's someone you know and trust. Mm-hmm. So I, I suppose, you know, be on the lookout for this sort of thing and just I, as knowledge, <laughs> shining a light on it will help hopefully help people yeah. be more aware of it. Check to make sure that that news source is a real news source. If it's a, a publication you've never heard of, just take a couple minutes and check the date. You know, you, it's easy, really, if you copy and paste any part of any article. You know, copy a paragraph from an article, load it into, just do a Google search of that entire paragraph. Right. And if it's plagiarized. It'll show up. It'll come, it'll take you to the original article most right. of the time. Which is, which is why I'm surprised that Google doesn't do this, because they already have the information that they can check against. Yeah. I suppose it's hard for them to differentiate, though, because there are sites out there that are aggregators. Some of my favorite sites in the world are, do a lot of aggregation of other people's news. Right, right. But, you know, when Google doesn't need to give you an alert of five different stories of the same thing. Like, let's say the AP releases a story. Yeah. Right. And then every major paper in the area will pick up that story. Right. But I think that's how it works to their advantage that they're using old stories because it will already have flowed through Google's 
checking. Right. It's it's coming up as new because it's it's no longer in the hey let's check these against each other. Right. Algorithm that, that Google probably has. Yeah, I think Google. So. There is a technical solution for this for Google though. Yeah. Well, and they claim that they're they're doing better with it, but uh, again, something to look out for. All right. Well, that is my story this week. Of course, we'll have links to our stories in the show notes, so you can check those out. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes from a listener named Zach. He calls it an American prince scheme. And uh, this one comes from uh, Warren Buffett, Joe. Warren Buffett? Warren Buffett. Huh. And he is... He's one uh, of the richest men in America. He is one of the richest men in America, dare I say, the world. Uh, Maybe, yeah. <laughs> he says... Uh, well, I'm just going to read it. it. The subject is your donation fund. And he says, hi. My name is Warren Buffett, a philanthropist, the CEO and chairman of the Berkshire Hathaway. The Berkshire Hathaway. I believe strongly in giving while living. I have one idea that never changes my mind, that you should use your wealth to help people around the world, and I've decided to donate this amount through our Sunshine Lady Humanitarian Grants Program to give out $5.5 million, 5500000 United Dollars, to randomly selected individuals <laughs> worldwide. On res- what are United Dollars? Does that I, mean I, they're they're stuck together? They're yes. glued together? They're all wrapped <laughs> maybe, up. Maybe in, just a rubber band. In bundles. Yeah. Okay. On receipt of this email, you should count yourself as one of the lucky individuals. Well, that's us, Joe. That's right. Your email address was chosen online while searching at random. <gasps> Kindly get back to me at your earliest convenience. I need receiver's name, country, home address, phone number, male or female, so I know your email address is valid. I wait to receive your reply once you read this email. Happy holidays in advance. Warm regards, Warren Buffett. There's no limit to the generosity of these uh, wealthy people in the world these days, Joe. Yeah, I think one of the things Warren Buffett has said is he doesn't give money away to people. Uh, Oh, is that right? Yeah, that he gives it away to organizations. Mm. And giving money to people he doesn't believe is good for them. Yeah. So. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> right. Well, uh, thank you, Zach, for sending that in. That, that is a, a good one. And that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, Carol Terrio returns, and she's speaking with Lisa Forte from Red Goat. And their discussion centers on Lisa's experiences of being a police officer and how that informed her perspective on the human factors in cybersecurity. And we are back. Joe, always great to have Carol Terrio back. This week, she is speaking with Lisa Forte. She is from Red Goat. And they are going to be talking about Lisa's experience as a police officer. Some really interesting stuff that Lisa did uh, with her time in that career. And they're going to be talking about the human factors in cybersecurity. Here's Carol Terrio. So today, I'm going to introduce you to Lisa Forte. She is a partner at Red Goat, a UK-based consultancy that specializes in cybersecurity testing, training, and wargaming. Now, Lisa is one of those rare humans that has worked both sides of the fence. What I mean by that is she's certainly big in the private sector as a cybersecurity expert, but she has also worked with the UK's primary cybercrime units. So I thought she'd be the perfect person to speak to about what scams we have labeled as hot and rising for 2020 and what behaviors or actions she can advise us to take to help us be a little bit safer out there. Lisa, thank you so much for speaking to me today on Hacking Humans. Thank you for having me. How about we get started with your fascinating background, like your time with the cops? What did you do there? When did that all start? So I was probably, I probably joined like five, six years ago. And I have to be honest, when I joined the police, I was probably a little bit naive. I grew up in a sort of 
pretty privileged bubble, I guess, in south of the UK. And it was sort of an abrupt reality check for me when I got to see sort of the darker side of society, I guess. Yeah, so it was a bit of a bit of a massive reality check and I had to grow up pretty fast. But I think it was a, a good experience overall and it's definitely left me a, a bit wiser, maybe a bit more paranoid than I ought to be, but wiser for it. I hear you on that. Now tell me, were you interested in cybercrime before you went and worked with the authorities or was it the other way around? So actually I worked for a a private company before I went to the police that uh, used to put armed guards on ships to protect them from pirates, believe it or not. And um, wow, yes, it's a bit of a crazy, (laughs) bit of a crazy story. And so we used to do a lot of OSINT on how the pirates were targeting ships and how they knew which ships were the best ones to target. So I was always interested in that sort of OSINT side of security. And so it was kind of a natural progression, I guess, from there. And so when you left the police, you would have been shaped so much more differently than most of us, right? Because you have been dealing with, like, as you said, all like the horrors of the cybercrime underworld. So you must have come away maybe being more paranoid, but also way more knowledgeable. Tell me, what are some of the growing threats you see ahead of us in 2020? So what things do you think that we should just keep an eye on? So I think kind of this is two sides to this. On the one hand, I think deep fakes are going to be an enormous problem and not just from the sort of democracy side of things, although I'm sure they can have a huge effect on our freedom to vote and our freedom of religion and all the rest of them. But if you look at even legitimate videos, so for example, the video of Elon Musk, who was smoking uh, and uh, Mm. Tesla's stock price plummeted almost instantly as soon as that video was released. Now, obviously that video was genuine, But if Mm. it wasn't genuine, you could seriously affect stock prices of major companies by doing things like that. So I think the problem with deep fakes is that they have an ability to really affect a lot of things. And you may recall sort of linked to deep fakes is this idea of voice skins. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this. Oh, I haven't heard that term. Tell me. So voice skins is essentially where the attackers will mimic the voice of the CEO of the company, for example. And this happened to an energy company here in Europe and they had a German CEO and his voice was cloned in a very similar way to a deep fake, really. And they called up one of the employees and they asked them to transfer basically £200,000 and it sounded exactly like the CEO. So, of course, the employee thought, "Okay, yeah, of course I'm going to do it. So I think, you know, that takes vishing the sort of voice attack to a whole new level. Yeah. And these are, there's a growing number of services like that. So I know of Liarbird, where you can literally put in audio of people. So you can, I could literally put in audio from this recording of you and hope that it comes out with something that approximates your voice. Now, you know, I would do that for a joke, but I guess people would do that for nefarious purposes. Yeah, definitely. And I don't think there are as many artifacts to be picked up on in an audio recording as you might be able to do with a deep fake video as you watch it and play it back you might pick up things that aren't quite right. That's going to be a lot harder to do with audio. Okay, so I find them very scary, particularly if you think about where we are. You know, there's the US presidential election this year. And, you know, it's scary for a lot of people that they might be duped. So what can people look for to try and stay ahead of the game? One of the main things that I was taught in the police, which I never really did in all honesty beforehand, 
was that everything needs to be corroborated. Anything that you rely on has to be corroborated by some other source. And I think we as society need to start thinking, if I post this on social media, I am responsible to fact check and ensure that this is quality uh, content before I share it to my followers, because otherwise I'm proliferating something I haven't even looked into. So I think that's a really big big part of what we need to start doing. Yeah. Wouldn't it be wonderful if social networking sites would prevent you from forwarding an article unless you actually opened it and read it? Because I suspect loads of people share stuff based on headline alone. They probably don't even open it. They yeah. probably just see the post and think, oh, I'll, I'll retweet that. Exactly. But I guess suppose you would get less, a lot less shares that way. Okay, so that's really interesting. So you're saying people should be responsible with the, whatever they post online. And one of the ways they can do that is to verify it and validate it with two independent sources of information. Yeah, and I think there are other things that indicate to us that we might be receiving a phishing email or some fake news or you know a, a malicious story or something. Because all of these stories, they're always going to sound too good to be true. And phishing emails are the same. They always sound too good to be true. And they always sort of evoke some sort of emotional response from you. And I think if you start feeling like that when you read something, it's probably worth going and checking it out. And what about with deep fakes and voice skins? What you were saying earlier that sometimes you can see something, a glitch or something in a deep fake that can give you a warning. So basically, if the hair stands in the back of your neck and something doesn't feel right, what are the things that you might want to look for? So researchers have seen that in deep fakes, sometimes the individual won't blink normally um, mm. because the AI hasn't had a lot of imagery of that person with their eyes closed. So for that reason, they can't make it blink. But I think even if you forget the actual video, if you just take the content, you know, does it sound odd, out of character? Does it sound too good to be true? Is it playing into your biases too much? And I think if you think that's true, then probably you ought to go and question it. I'm just nervous. <laughs> I'm just nervous. I'm nervous about tomorrow <laughs> because obviously deep fakes are going to get better, right? And they're going to get more subtle and more, and in some cases, more sinister. And we're going to have to keep our wits about us out there. There is a bit of a silver lining to this at the moment. Oh, thank gosh. So, <laughs> well, it's not that much of a silver lining, to be honest, but it's a little okay, bit. Okay, gray lining. <laughs> it's a gray lining. So Deep Trace recently found 15,000 deep fake videos. And they actually realized that 96% of those videos were porn. Hmm. And most of those were female celebrities' faces put onto pornographic videos. So what do humans do when they create a new technology? That's what they employ it for. So at the moment, it's not too much of a threat. Um, that makes me feel really sorry for those that get cyberbullied out there. True. And I think this is kind of the other side to all of this stuff. Reality also can become plausibly deniable. Because if you look at the recent Prince Andrew interview with BBC, um, and there was that photograph, and he claimed that photograph had been faked. And it looks pretty conclusively like it hasn't been faked, and it is in fact real. Mm. But because these things exist, it gives also gives people the opportunity to say, well, that's that wasn't me. That was fake. Yeah. So you can also deny things that did happen. So it sort of ruins a lot of trust in society, I think, overall. Well, one of the more cheery interviews I've done. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you get from me. 
<laughs> no, thank you so much, Lisa, because these, these are really, really important points because the world is changing and we need to keep up with it. So thank you for giving us a hard slap of reality on today's show. Thank you so much for having me. This was Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans. All right. Interesting conversation, huh? Yeah, very interesting. Uh, I don't know I'd call what she described as a silver lining a silver lining, <laughs> especially not for the the women who are victimized by these deep fakes. But yeah, I, I do agree that right now the vast amount of the energy is being spent in producing porn. So yeah. I think that plausible deniability is probably the biggest problem with the advent of deep fakes that we're going to see elected officials going, nope, 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 that wasn't right. me, that was fake. <laughs> who are you going to believe? Right. Who are you going to believe? <laughs> me or your lying eyes. Right. I agree that deep fakes are going to be a, a big problem, but that's a, a few years away, I think. But what I say is I'm not worried about deep fakes impacting the 2020 election, but I am worried about deep fakes impacting the 2024 election. Hmm. One of the very interesting things that I actually hadn't considered about deep fakes is what Lisa described with Elon Musk and coming up with a great way to make money with a short sale scam. I short a bunch of stock of some company and right. then I release a fake video of their CEO doing something stupid or saying something damaging about the company. The market panics. I buy back the stock at a lower price and I profit. Yeah. That's a very real scenario mm -hmm. and a very easy to implement scenario. Yeah. And I wonder if it's something does, for example, the SEC need to aim their enforcement at if it becomes a problem. I haven't seen any reports of people overtly doing that, but it certainly has to be on their radar. No, I, I don't think this has been done yet, but it is something that's going to happen. And I think the SEC should be paying attention to this and it should be on their radar, just like you said. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question, Dave. Are you buying what Lisa was talking about with voice skins? Uh, you know, we covered that a few episodes ago and I remain skeptical. You remain skeptical. I do. I, I think in, in this story, the story she mentions got a lot of coverage and a lot of the coverage concluded that they were, this is what they were doing. But again, I, I remain skeptical. I think it's easier to just employ a, a person, an actor right. who's good at mimicking someone. Yep. That's going to be uh, quicker. It's going to be cheaper. You're going to be more nimble in your ability to generate responses. Right. So is it possible? Yeah, probably. But uh, I think that's probably not what's going on yet. If a voice skin is something that I can put between my mouth and somebody else's ear, mm -hmm. then maybe. Right. But I, I'll have to look more into this voice skin. I'll do some yeah. research. No, we're, we're just not. I don't think we're there yet. And yeah. I, actually, I spoke with a researcher oh, about two weeks ago who works in this area. And right. he was saying exactly that, that, that that's not what's happening yet. The bad guys are going to go with what's easiest. Yes. And right now it's easiest to just get somebody who's a pretty good mimic. Yeah, so. I would agree. I did see an interesting article. You can just Google this and find out where, where it is. But there's an article on CNET, but I don't think I, the original article I read was on CNET. But they're actually using uh, or thinking about using mice to detect faked voices. Go on. So what happens is when you and I communicate and we listen to a voice, you and I are listening to a bunch of different factors about that voice. We're listening to the message. We're listening to the tone of the voice. Yeah. We're listening to the inflection. Mm -hmm. And you and I are trying to catch all the nonverbal and verbal things that are coming from that voice into our ears. Right. Mice do not have that problem. <laughs> okay. Right? Mice just hear noises. And there are artifacts in those sounds that indicate that the voice is fake that you and I will probably miss, but mice can be trained to find it. 
<laughs> say, how do you get them to tell you? Uh, you? You put them in a box and you condition them to uh, to push a button for a real voice and push another button for a fake voice. And I you, see. You train them just like an AI model. Yeah. Right. They get a reward. They get a reward when they're right. right. Okay. And quickly they can identify it. That's huh. the idea. They actually got the idea from uh, another experiment where they had pigeons finding breast cancer cells. Huh. And I don't know how I, I would feel if if I found out that my diagnosis was given by a pigeon. Yeah. It also sounds painful. But uh, <laughs> no, they're looking at images. Oh, I see. They're right, right, at right. Images right. of cells. <laughs> okay, and right. um, the pigeons can identify cancer cells. <laughs> Madam, we've got bad news. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, we brought in an expert. Right. This pigeon, <laughs> Flappy. <laughs> right. The, yeah. <laughs> oh my. No, but they, they actually do a good job because they're they're not they're looking for things that people aren't <laughs> right. looking for, unencumbered right? by the thought process. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. They're unencumbered by thought and they can do it. All right. Well, again, thanks to uh, Lisa Forte for joining us and Carol Terrio for bringing us uh, another interesting story. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.